0: Uh, One of the key themes of the book of Acts is this idea of the name of Jesus. Now, it seems to mean a few different things. It's a little tricky to pin down, but it's something like the authority of Jesus, uh, his kingdom, his power, his reputation. Uh, That's my theory. Uh, So let's let's have a look at just a a quick summary of uh, how Acts uses this idea of the name of Jesus. So in 3, chapter 3, verse 6, people are healed in the name of Jesus. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. Chapter 10, verse 43, everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 38, you can repent and be baptised into the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 12, there's no other name by which we must be saved. Uh, 4, verse 18, the disciples teach in the name of Jesus. Uh, They suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 15, uh, Paul is God's chosen instrument to carry Jesus' name to the Gentiles. Uh, And then a couple of verses later, God chooses from the Gentiles a people for his name. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 17, uh, that means that this people bear his name or, or carry his name. And then in 1526, Paul and Barnabas risk their lives for the name. They risk their lives for the name. And then in today's passage, I don't know whether you noticed, as chapter 19 was read, but it's used again three times. The believers are baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then there are these seven sons of Sceva who they try to invoke or try to use the name of the Lord Jesus over the demon-possessed. And they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And then lastly, in verse 17, many held the name of the Lord Jesus in high honour and confessed their evil deeds. Uh, so here's my, here's my theory that the name of Jesus, it's shorthand for something like the kingly authority, power and reputation of Jesus. That's what Luke means when he uses this phrase, the name of Jesus. The kingly authority, power and reputation of Jesus. It's the sort of thing uh, we hear when a policeman bangs on a door and says, open up in the name of the law. In other words, open up by the authority of the law. I mentioned this at home group on Thursday night and John Johansson said, no, nah, we don't actually do that. <laughs> we just say, police! <laughs> uh, or maybe another example might be a council inspector who has the name of the council you know, on their shirt or maybe on their identity badge. And that gives them the authority or the power to book your car or to approve building work or to close a restaurant. But for Paul and his co-workers, it's the name of Jesus that matters, his kingly authority, his power and his reputation. They're proclaiming those things. They travel for the sake of those things. It's why they speak. It's why they persevere through beatings so that people will recognise the name and then choose to come under it, choose to come under the kingly authority and power of Jesus. And their work is actually effective and powerful because of the name of Jesus, because there is power in the name. They bear his name and they operate under his authority. But here's the question for you today. You're not just observing... Uh, This is the personal question as we see what Paul did in Ephesus. If you are a Christian, then you bear that same powerful name. You bear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you aware of that power? Uh, The power of Jesus' name to change your life, to defeat sin to heal sickness, to produce repentance and faith in you and through you as you proclaim that name to others? There is power in the name of Jesus if you belong to him. Do you use that power? Do you live as a citizen within the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ as someone who bears his powerful name? Well, chapter 19, it picks up a story uh, with Paul partway through his third missionary journey. Uh, so, chapter 9 and verse 1, he, he arrives in Ephesus. But uh, chapter 18 finished with him having left Corinth. He, he grabbed Priscilla and Aquila, who were in Corinth, and he took them to Ephesus with him. Verse 21 of chapter 18. And then he continued on to Jerusalem and then back home to Antioch, where he always starts and finishes. Uh, verse 23 of chapter 18, he begins his third journey. And you can see him starting from Antioch here. And he makes his way through Asia and he gets to Ephesus at the start of chapter 19. So verse 1, uh, he finds a group of men who seem to be followers of Jesus. They're called disciples. uh, But for some reason, we're not told exactly what's what's wrong. Uh, Paul is unsure about their, their status. And so he asks in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because all the way through Acts, the test of whether someone is a Christian or not is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And specifically in Acts, the presence of the Holy Spirit often comes with speaking in tongues as evidence of that. For example, chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first comes on the Jewish believers uh, and they all speak in tongues as a confirmation of something brand new that had happened. And then a bit further on in chapter 10, uh, Peter and his Jewish friends tell the gospel to Cornelius and his Gentile friends. The same thing happens, this time with Gentiles. Chapter 10 verse 44, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard Peter's message. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they'd heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, can anyone stop them from being baptised because they've already received the Holy Spirit? So you can see the Holy Spirit is, evidence, uh, is evidenced uh, with speaking in tongues, uh, just like in chapter 2. And so God's seal of ownership on his children, whether they're Jew or Gentile, is having the Holy Spirit. Anyone who has the Spirit is a Christian. If you don't, you don't belong to him. So this is a test Paul wants to use on these men that he's not so sure about. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They say we've never heard of a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asks another question in verse 3. Our translation that was read for us says, Then what baptism did you receive? You see, the two go together. The washing with water, the visible sign, and the washing of sins with God's Holy Spirit at which the water points towards. The two of them go together. In Acts, sometimes the baptism comes before the Holy Spirit, sometimes the Holy Spirit comes first and sometimes they both happen together. But they're connected, the sign and the spiritual truth that the sign points towards. With this man, it was different though. Uh, they'd only received John's baptism. It was a baptism of repentance, uh, which is sort of pointing towards Jesus, but is not the same thing. It's not exactly clear how much they did know about Jesus, but they were missing something. And so Paul explains to them, John the Baptist was actually pointing to people, uh, pointing people to Jesus, to the one who would come after him. And so once these, these uh, believers find out all the facts about John and about Jesus, then they're more than happy to believe. And verse 5 tells us that they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And there's our first uh, reference to that phrase, the, Lord, uh, the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's a bit of a funny expression, I think, isn't it? Uh, baptised into a name. I think we normally think of being baptised in the name of Jesus. Uh, we're a bit more used to that, uh, which probably mostly I guess means something like baptized by the authority of Jesus, or with the authority of Jesus, to be baptized in someone's name. Uh, that's what we say when we when we pray and we say we pray in the name of Jesus. Uh, we pray by His authority. Uh, but the actual word is into. It's not in. Uh, we're baptized into, the name of Jesus. In fact, I thought, oh, what about what about Matthew 28? So I went back and had a look at Matthew 28, where Jesus tells the disciples to go and make disciples and to baptise them. Guess what it says? Into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Which is interesting, isn't it? There's one name but three people baptised into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, is it significant and what does it mean? Well, another reason I think it actually is significant is when Paul asks the men in verse 3, when he says, what baptism did you receive? It's actually not what it says in the Greek. Uh, Other versions say it a bit more accurately, like the ESV. Uh, He he says literally, into what were you baptised? Which, what does that mean? Into what were you baptised? It's a strange expression. It's perhaps not surprising that the the NIV and some other versions change it from that because then we have to say, what does that mean? Into what were you baptised? It doesn't even say, into whom were you baptised? Into Jesus. It doesn't ask that. It says, so what does it mean to to be baptised into something? Does it mean into what kingdom were you baptised? Into what reality were you baptised? Into what experience were you baptised? So here's what I think. I think Paul is saying, when you're baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus, you're admitted into his kingdom. Uh, Like a citizenship ceremony. Baptism is a sign of coming under the authority of the name of Jesus. You're being initiated into the group of people who bear the title Christ Carrier. Christian, those who carry his name. So were you baptised into that? Paul is asking. Uh, and then when he does baptise them, he places his hands on them, uh, just like we did with Ros, as, as a visible expression of God's spirit uh, landing on this person and, and filling them and equipping them. And that's what happens the Spirit of Jesus comes on them and they enter his kingdom. They're baptised into his name uh, as a sign of his claim on their life and we're told they speak in tongues and prophesy. So what about you? Uh, If you haven't been baptised, then perhaps that's something you should do. Uh, To be baptised into his name, recognise the authority of Jesus over you. Submit your life to him as saviour and Lord. Baptism isn't an expression of all of that. Many of us, I suspect, have already done that. So let me ask you another question. In what sense are you actually living out that experience? In what sense have you been baptised into his name? In what ex- to what extent is your life An expression of being under his authority and influence and kingdom. Does his name define who you are? Does his name order your priorities? How well uh, are you bearing the name of Jesus in your life? Does each area of your life bear the unmistakable influence of him? Is the name of Jesus as clearly seen over your house as your street number is? As your neighbours walk past your house, do they say, that's number five, or that's the house with the nice garden, or do instead they say, that's the house that's got Christians in it? Wouldn't that be great if every street and apartment block in Ashfield had a family like that? had a family where the name of Jesus was obvious and where they were influencing their street or their apartment block. Bearing the name of Jesus. Well, back to Paul. Look at how he bears Jesus' name. The 12 men converted, that's just the start. Verse 8, as he always does, he preaches in the synagogue. He speaks boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But then, as usual, he outwears his welcome in the synagogue and he ends up having to move to the local public hall, verse 9, where he stayed for two years. And so verse 10, everyone in the area gets to hear the word of the Lord. But not only just evangelism, verse 11, there are miraculous healings as well because Paul is working with the authority of Jesus in his name. Now, it took some pretty astonishing miracles to make an impact in Ephesus. There was a history in Ephesus of of, uh, magicians and powerful secret rituals and uh, mystery religions, uh, both Jewish and pagan. But look at what happens around Paul, verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, handkerchiefs can cure illnesses. I think my handkerchief's only going to cause illnesses, really. But this, Paul's for curing illnesses. But, of course, it only happens, not to do with Paul, it happens because of the extraordinary power of the name of Jesus in whose authority Paul is working Well, there are some who are particularly interested in that power, not because they actually want healing, because they want to control the power of that name. Uh, There in verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, tried to use it over those who were demon-possessed. They'd say, In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, I know about Paul, but but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, gave them such a beating they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It seems to work a little bit like electricity. If you know what you're doing, if you're actually qualified to use that power... Electricity can do powerful things. But if you're not qualified, you can do damage to yourself. You see, for those who are qualified, the name of Jesus is the key to the power and the authority of Jesus Himself authority to cure sickness and cast out demons. But to be qualified to use the name, you actually have to be baptised into it, you have to be part of the kingdom of Jesus. And these seven sons of Sceva, they hadn't been baptised into that name, but they were trying to use it. The seven sons of Sceva, it sounds a bit like a, a rock tribute band, I think, uh, you know, playing cold chisel covers at the, the local pub. Well, they try to plug into the new power source in, in the name of Jesus, but the demon says, I don't know who you are. You see, the name of Jesus isn't a magic word that gives just anyone power, The name of Jesus is the authority of Jesus available to those who are under his authority, who've been baptised into the name. And it only works because Jesus himself is authorising them. Well, when that story becomes known around Ephesus, verse 17, the name of the Lord was held in high honour. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. It was magnified. It was extolled. People recognize that Jesus had authority, that Jesus deserved honour and allegiance. And what we see is that's more than just a, 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 an intellectual recognition, it's more than just head knowledge. To honour the name of Jesus means to, to actually show that in your life, to live it out. Firstly, to repent, to turn around from your old ways and to follow Jesus as the one who deserves your allegiance instead. For example, look at verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. <clears throat> That's getting rid of your old way of life, isn't it? It's killing those things that threaten your new loyalty to Jesus. Because when you're baptised into a name, you're moving from one kingdom into another. You're coming under a new reality. You have a new master. It's the powerful work of the name of Jesus that can turn someone around from the old way to the new way. What do you need to, to burn to show that allegiance to Jesus. What is there of your old life that you need to get rid of, that's still clinging? The TV, the share market advice, the overseas holiday brochure, your career aspirations, your cosy comfortable retirement plans. To be baptised into Jesus' name means to move camps, to change nationalities. And it's going to have an impact on your allegiances. And the result of the miracles, the result of the gospeling meant that the word of the Lord, verse 20, grew, spread widely and grew in power. Power that comes from Jesus' name, the power of the gospel to change lives. Which is the greater miracle in this chapter? Is it, is it the healings and the exorcisms or is it the changed lives of people who repent? Well, they're both miracles, of course. Well, that's the first section. The second section, I think, continues this theme of the idea of the name and, and we see competing names and competing power because that was Ephesus, really. There were plenty of temples. There was a huge temple to Artemis or Diana, depending if you're Roman or Greek. And when the name of Jesus starts to grow in honour, the trade in the competition starts to suffer. The temple souvenirs. So Demetrius starts a riot. Verse 25. Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. You can see what his real concern is. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole region of Asia, he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. (laughs) How dare he? There's the choice that people are facing, lumps of metal with wobbly legs or the real God who sent Jesus to defeat death and sin with power over demons and sickness. Of course, the gods who are not gods at all are going to suffer compared to the power of Jesus' name. It's no wonder the temple trade lost its good name, its reputation, but it's not just the temple trade. Uh, The goddess that the temple trade's focused on has lost her name as well. Look at verse 27. Also, the temple of the great god Artemis will be discredited, lost her reputation. The goddess herself will be robbed of her divine majesty. When the name of Jesus is honoured, the names of the competition will suffer. And the crowd are furious and they begin chanting the name. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians and they're shouting. But just because you're yelling a name with a lot of emotion and a lot of volume, that doesn't give the name power. Doesn't give it any authority just because you're yelling it. In the end, verse 35, the, the city clerk has to speak some sense into them and dismisses the crowd. Uh, everyone knows if Ephesus guards the image of Artemis that fell from heaven, don't do anything rash, he says. It's a bit sad, isn't it, that the extent of the power of the name of Artemis is a lump of rock that fell from the sky. But compare that to the name Paul is preaching, the name of Jesus who has authority over evil spirits and sickness, authority over the independence and pride of humans, who submit to Jesus and bow their knee before the one whose name is the only one by which you can be saved, and who are then baptised into that name. So is that something you've done? Are you bowing your knee before Jesus to the one who's defeated sin and death, who's seated at God's right hand and will one day return to judge? He wants your allegiance. He deserves your allegiance. Will you imitate the Ephesians? The Ephesians who held the name of Jesus in high honour who openly confess their evil deeds and committed to making a fresh start that's the name of Jesus that gives the power to do that in people's lives do you know that that power is available to you this chapter has described this clash between spiritual powers between Jesus and the the false uh, powers Ephesus seemed to be a focus of magic and mystery religions, both Jewish and pagan. It seemed to be an attraction, uh, it seemed to attract displays of spiritual power. And we've got the Ephesian church living in the midst of all of that. It's interesting that a few years later when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesian church, it's full of descriptions of power. It just makes an interesting read to... It'll only take you take 20 minutes, read through Ephesians and just circle every reference to, to power. But Paul tells them in chapter 1 that he's praying for these Ephesians in the midst of this city of power uh, and the need for them to know that the power of Jesus' name is available to them. The power that changed their lives and was available to change the lives of the people in the city around them. So here's what he writes in chapter 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know firstly the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, but also that you would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. What's that power? That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. That's the power that's available for you if you have been baptised into that name, the name of Jesus. We bear that name if we're Christian. The powerful name of Jesus that changes lives. Paul finishes chapter 3 with this doxology, also about power. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, now look at this next phrase, that is at work within us. To him who can do immeasurably more than all we can even imagine, he's, that power at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.